Well, my pleasure to introduce you to our symposium, Modernizing Schizophrenia Care, Pharmacotherapy Innovations and Clinical Implications. I'm Les Citrome, I'm a psychiatrist from New York, and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Christoph Carell, who's from everywhere. Here are our obstacles, our obstacles, our disclosures. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> Old Freud is yes, telling sir. us something here. <laughs> yeah, so they're actually not obstacles, I should say. They're facilitators because we actually have the good fortune of participating in uh, many stages of development of drugs we're going to be talking about. Drugs that are early on in their development, those that are almost close to market, and those that have been around for quite some time. We've actually spent a great deal of effort on the development of these agents and looking to see where they fit in the care of individual patients with schizophrenia. So although it's a disclosure, and uh, para, what's it called? Para, para, what's the word for when you say the wrong thing? Slip of the tongue. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Thank you for your understanding. Uh, the other disclosures, we're going to be talking about some things that are clearly investigational, and they may or may not make it into the marketplace, but they're still interesting to talk about. Our learning objectives is we're going to go over the mechanisms of action and formulations of available and emerging antipsychotics with respect to not only efficacy, but also safety. And we're also going to spend some time talking about adherence. We're going to identify the factors related to non-adherence, actually, identify some strategies we can employ to address that, and overcome this uh, loss of engagement that we sometimes see with our patients in treatment. After the acute episode, sometimes things get lost, so we need to figure out how to improve that. We're going to talk about some patient-centered approaches in communication and how to best impart information and how to get our patients to actually be involved in decision-making so they own the decision and they're more likely to be adherent. So shared decision-making will be a topic of conversation as well. And then, in the end, we're going to also talk about uh, the uh, teams and how important they are, but also looking at the evidence and incorporating the evidence into our day-to-day -day clinical decision-making. Let's meet Roger. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was 18 in the era of first-generation antipsychotics, received haloperidol for many years. He is currently on haloperidol decanoate. He's now in his 50s and remains symptomatic with auditory hallucinations, which he is usually able to ignore. He's uninterested in doing much in the way of physical activities, spends most of the day sitting in the living room of his shared supervised residence, has no complaints other than new restrictions on when and where he can smoke his cigarettes. Roger's BMI is close to 30, and his fasting plasma glucose is 105 milligrams per deciliter. He has mild drug-induced Parkinsonism and has developed some mild dyskinetic movements of his tongue. Roger's not unusual. You probably have met Roger or people like Roger over the years. So we're going to first start with characteristics of available and emerging antipsychotics. And uh, Christoph, what is different and what is new that we can offer Roger? And are all the antipsychotics the same in terms of efficacy? And what about side effects? What about LAI antipsychotics? Please take us through that. What is being developed as we speak? Well, thanks very much, Les, and thank you all for being here. Good morning uh, at this hour of the day. So well, let's start with the latest landmark network meta-analysis to remind you 
What is a network meta-analysis? It's an analysis that takes all randomized controlled trials into account, independent of whether they were head-to-head -head comparisons or comparisons against placebo. And the assumption is that basically over the last 50 or 60 years, the research has remained the same. The dosages of medications, the effect of placebo, and the way research is done. And doing that, assuming that it's called transitivity, all being equal, then there are indirect comparisons as well as direct comparisons that are taken together in order to have a ranking of all medications against each other. Even though, as you can see in the perimeter, many, if not most, antipsychotics have never been compared head to head. So it's a, it's a long shot in a way, um, because you're including comparisons that may be affected by time. So haloperidol is one big comparator, but the dose has come down from 20 to maybe 10. So basically, the comparison now is fairer than it was in the past. And placebo is obviously the biggest bubble, because every agent that is approved needs to have at least two positive placebo-controlled trials. But you may know it already. Placebo is very different now than it was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, there was noise. Some people got better, some got worse. It was a sugar pill. Now, actually, there is an average of 12.2 points greater improvement than it was 40 years ago with placebo, whereas drug only increased by 1.2 points. So there's basically a 10-point greater efficacy now of placebo, which makes it hard to do these indirect comparisons, but you can obviously statistically adjust for that. What does this meta-analysis show us? It's an upgrade of the prior Lancet paper from 2013, where there were only 15 antipsychotics considered. A lot of the older ones were not in there. It was over 215 RCTs. Now we're at 450,000 patients. Usual around 40 years of age patients, um, more males than females, and a lot of illness duration. Trial duration was acute efficacy in exacerbated patients, three to 13 year, years, uh, weeks, sorry. So what does this meta-analysis show us? If you're colorblind, you're disadvantaged, but in difference to the prior meta-analysis, there is now also a ranking of the quality of the evidence or the confidence. So anything that's read is really somewhat dubious and doubtful because either the numbers are too small or there are too few connections in this network. But overall, you can see with few exceptions of very small number uh, studies or older agents, all the antipsychotics tested are better than placebo because they hang out to the left of this dividing one line and their 95% confidence intervals do not touch one. Uh, the only one that's really uh, squarely close to placebo is levomepromazine. And we have effect sizes that range from small, 0.26, to medium, 0.5. And only one agent is really large with the effect size, and that's clozapine. And on top, you have a lot of amisulpride, or lanzapine, risperidone, paliperidone. But overall, most of these 95% confidence intervals overlap suggesting that the efficacy differences are relatively small and gradual, as also the authors note, whereas side effect differences are much larger and often both statistically and clinically relevant. So here I listed the three 
dopamine blockade related side effects and I don't expect you to read the exact names of these medications but I want to give you the, the gestalt and that means when you block dopamine and get EPS, akathisia and prolactin elevation the ones that are not so different from placebo that are up on top here are the peens because they have inbuilt uh, anticholinergic and antihistaminergic blockade they also are looser binding and the partial agonists, ABC, aripiprazole, brexpiprazole, cariprazine, versus the dones and the first generation agents are all at the bottom having more of that. Now take the reverse from not so much dopamine related but histaminergic related side effects and this is weight gain and sedation. Here we have on top again the partial agonists, not so different from placebo, ABC, but also the don'ts, whereas at the bottom we have the peens. So very simple math that you can do in your head. And the differences here are really quite large with effect sizes of one and a half or more in difference in terms of side effects. Then we have QTC, the prolongation of the um, um, uh, uh, QT interval in the heart, which could, if it's too long, predispose to prosata um, pont. And we have four medica five medications that are not different from placebo. The three partial agonists, ABC, aripiprazole, brexpiprazole, cariprazine, as well as polyperidone and lurazidone. So if there is a combination with other medications, be it antipsychotics off-label, or with other psychotropics or medications used for medical illness, these would have the least risk of prolonging and adding up the QT prolongation. What about long-acting injectables? In terms of efficacy, there have been various meta-analyses that we've been engaged in, and what's been shown is that maybe for RCTs, it's harder to show a difference. These are the randomized trials. Why? Because patients enrolled there are more adherent. They say, I have the illness. I want to be studied in a double-blind study, and I actually know that you'll check on my adherence. So in the meta-analysis published in Schizophrenia Bulletin, we showed, okay, no difference between LAIs and oral treatment for all-cause discontinuation and relapse, but also no difference in adherence rates because these are unusual patients. But when we did database cohort studies, almost 100,000 patients, and also mirror image studies where the same individual is tested before and after switching from oral to an LAI, there were very strong advantages of the long-acting injectable. So we need to take the design and the patient population into account when comparing the efficacy. What about side effects of LAIs? Yes, you're giving all the medications for two weeks, four weeks, 12 weeks. Does that mean you have more side effects? Does it mean you have higher risk of discontinuation? That's not true. We did a meta-analysis comparing randomly assigned the same oral medication with the same LAI, and out of 119 adverse effects, 97%, 115 of them basically were the same. There were three that might be higher with LAIs, akinesia, likely because of the first generation agents that released the medication quickly, LDL, cholesterol change, yes, these medications are in the system, so people can gain weight, and why anxiety is higher, I have no clue, but LAIs were also associated with less prolactin elevation and hyperprolactinemia, which are very much related to the peak level. And as you know, oral treatment has a lot of peak trough variation. 
whereas the long-acting injectables have a more efficient, smoother pharmacokinetic level. But what about new agents? So this comes from a paper we recently published where you can read all of this. I'll take you a little bit on a tour de force. You will not remember all of these new medications and names, but we've put together some that are at the very end of the development and will be most likely approved next year, and others that are earlier on. So let's start by dividing the new medications developed for schizophrenia by indication or primary outcome. So for total and positive symptoms, cannabidiol, which was basically developed or tested independent of the industry, had two superior studies for pans-positive and CGI. So you know that cannabis has the bad part, THC, but maybe something that could be antipsychotic in nature also has been used for pain, maybe for epilepsy and tics. What about separating D2 out and just doing D3 antagonism? A small phase 2 study recently was positive, so we'll maybe see more on D3 antagonism, which is obviously different than cariprazine, which is a D3-preferring partial agonist. Here we have just an antagonist. The next antipsychotic most likely approved next year will be lumateperon, that is a medication developed by intracellular therapies, which has novel pharmacology. It still interacts with dopamine, but in a new way. How? Usually, medications are the same both pre- and postsynaptically. They're either antagonists or partial agonists. This medication has a dissociation of that effect, being a partial agonist presynaptically, stimulating the break, thereby downtoning the dopamine flow, allowing the partial ant sorry the full antagonism postsynaptically to be much lower so basically this medication gets away with 40% postsynaptic blockade being an antipsychotic at 42 milligrams in addition it has a built-in ssri serotonin reuptake inhibitor so it's an antidepressant mechanism together with dopamine modulation without blocking dopamine too much which could counter the antidepressant effect and quite uniquely, D1 antagonism-related increase in glutamatergic drive, both NMDA and uniquely AMPA agonist activity. Now, the data currently are only in acute schizophrenia, so we only know that it improves positive symptoms and total symptoms and CGI, but there's a promise, maybe, if the studies are positive, that this medication could be helpful also for post-psychotic depression, but even more so negative symptoms and cognitive dysregulation. But again, this will need to be studied separately. Um, there's been a negative story about the phosphodiesterase T10A inhibitors. Two trial programs recently were again negative. That might have to do with the fact that this was done in the context of ongoing dopamine blockade. So basically, there's maybe too much dampening of the dopamine system already, and I'll tell you about a different trial program that tries to do that in monotherapy. Um, but something really exciting is the TAR1 agonist story. These are trace amine-associated receptors, which are cool because they're intracellular and presynaptic. You may remember that the pathophysiology of schizophrenia that is treated postsynaptically right now has nothing wrong, as far as we know, with the postsynaptic receptors. The problem is an overproduction uh, of dopamine presynaptically. 
So this could be the first treatment ever to actually regulate the flow of dopamine from the presynaptic vesicles into the synaptic cleft. One phase 2b study, vastly superior for everything, positive symptoms, negative symptoms, general symptoms, total psychopathology, also CGI, and measures of negative symptoms. Now, this had a relatively small placebo effect, so the currently started phase 3 program will have to replicate that. But that would be a revolution to our treatment going away from postsynaptic treatment to presynaptic stabilization. And then there was one positive study in Brazil with a nitric oxide donor, which can also modulate dopamine. But since then, three studies have been vastly negative. So that's mechanism is most likely off the table. What about cognition and um, negative symptoms? As you see, I was able to put the total symptoms medications on two slides, but here we have actually two indications on just one slide. So it's much more silent around that because although this is the bigger unmet need, but it's harder to actually get there. So what do we have here? Um, there is a PDE10 inhibitor program that tries to do that as monotherapy, so no antipsychotics. So maybe this mechanism can only unfold itself without other antipsychotic treatment that is dopamine blocking. But is this medication enough of an antipsychotic so that people don't break through? You might improve negative symptoms, but what about relapse prevention? Then pimavanserin is being studied, as you know, a 5-HT2A inverse agonist. So not just setting the 5-HT2A receptor in neutral. No, it actually creates a negative signal. And that has been shown to help psychosis in patients with Parkinson's disease approved in the United States. Recently was a um, press release that also there were positive uh, results for dementia-related psychosis. And I'll show you something for residual positive symptoms in a minute. So these data are awaited fourth quarter uh, this year. So hold your breath. Then there's a new medication, uh, 5-HT2A antagonist, not inverse agonist, plus sigma-2 antagonist. And that's roluperidone, which in a phase two study exclusively conducted in Eastern Europe was positive as early as week two in a 12-week study, improving negative symptoms better than placebo, again in monotherapy. There was no antipsychotic on board, so you see a story unfolding, but it's hard to interpret because there was almost no placebo effect for negative symptoms, one point difference, and the drug that had a big effect size, 0.5, actually had only a 3.5 point improvement, which is what other studies in the Western world have had as placebo effect. Also, although on placebo patients were off antipsychotic, there were very few patients that got worse. Overall, the symptoms stayed the same. So we'll have to see whether this can replicate, but these data are forthcoming also fourth quarter, maybe early next year. And then there is a novel approach, the D-amino acid oxide uh, inhibitor, which actually tries to stop the conversion of serine, D-serine, into a metabolite, thereby enriching the internal pro-glutamatergic availability of um, D-serine, which has been shown to maybe help with negative symptoms. In terms of cognition, um, the Bidopertin story was very disappointing, as you know, uh, where the uh, 
the glycine transporter 1 inhibitor did not separate for negative symptoms. Here, Boehringer Engelheim is trying to do this now for cognition. And then cannabidiol, which helped positive symptoms, did not seem to help negative symptoms. But again, these were small studies. What about treatment resistance? One very unfortunate negative study program with a D1 preferring D1, D2 antagonist. Why D1 preferring? Because clozapine is the medication that has the closest um, um, affinity to both D1 and D2 being equal. All other agents block D2 more, but it wasn't better than risperidone or olanzapine in patients who were uh, having residual symptoms. Again, let's return to pimavanserin, the 5-HT inverse to a uh, inverse agonist. There was a recent press release that overall a study for residual positive symptoms was negative, but when removing 20% of the patients, all of the ones studied in the United States that had a vast placebo effect, and taking a smaller group where you have actually less power to separate, all the 80% of patients studied in Europe, it was a positive study for both total symptoms and clinical global impressions. So basically, there's a clear signal that this might work. And in the overall sample, there was also an improvement in negative symptoms. And then a study uh, of or two studies of sodium benzoate, which is again a, a DAAO uh, inhibitor. So where we've seen that serine can be improved, um, uh, availability was positive in two studies, but small and independent of the industry. So another, another uh, potential to pick, be picked up by the pharmaceutical industry. What about non-adherence? Well, here we've had a recent approval of several agents, long-acting injectables. Aripiprazole oroxyl had the necessity of three weeks of oral co-treatment because it's a slow uptake with the, depending on the size of the particles. But now with the nanoparticle dispersion, giving that injection at the same time with the one that is usually given, you're actually reducing the oral co-treatment to a single pill of 30 milligrams um, of our piprazole. Also approval for the first subcutaneous ever, risperidone, long-acting injectable, uh, Perseris by Indivior. And there have been a positive trial program with an, an um, intramuscular injectable here, risperidone. Uh, the six-monthly paliperidone is underway. And there's also uh, once this should be subcutaneous, I apologize. So risperidone once monthly, another subcutaneous medication is being studied by Teva. So we'll see here that we have more agents available that don't need immediate injection, uh, uh, sorry, that don't need uh, extra oral treatment, and also that the subcutaneous injectables are coming up. Last but not least, can we reduce side effects, which are being discussed in a minute by less. And what we've seen is two medications approved for what Roger actually has. He had beginning tardive movements in his tongue. These are two agents that are VMAT2 inhibitors, vesicular monoamine transporter inhibitors. Again, a presynaptic modulation that less um, do dopamine is stored in these vesicles and released. And the agent that's most likely also going to be approved next year is an improved olanzapine. That was one of the questions. Remember, what reduces weight gain? Actually, it's mu opioid antagonism, which has been shown in several studies to actually reduce the weight gain associated with olanzapine while having the same efficacy in a head-to-head -head trial versus placebo like olanzapine. 
So again, this is a lot of information. Hopefully, many of these medications will make it through phase three, but again, we'll have two new agents most likely next year. So what about adherence then, Les? Tell us about that. Roger was put on haldol-decanoate because he was not consistently taking medications. That seems to be a reasonable choice, but he also has some side effects. After his last hospitalization, he agreed to taking his medication by injection so that he would not be nagged every day at his supervised residence. Take well, us through that. Well, thanks, Christoph. You know, maybe one day we'll offer Roger one of those agents that we went through at a dizzying place, I may say, with lots of different mechanisms of action which sound really intriguing and I hope they make it because we need something other than just plain old dopamine D2 blocking agents. But the bottom line will be yes it has to work but it also has to be tolerable and plus the patient has to be willing to take it. So why is this so important? If someone obviously doesn't take their foundational antipsychotic medication their risk for relapse is quite high. In fact skipping or stopping medication is the most powerful prediction of relapse right from the get-go with first episode patients. We take a look at the relapse risk. It's five times higher after the first episode when someone stops their medicine. There are many reasons for this. One of them is uh, uh, perhaps uh, side effects that they have that they don't like, maybe executive function that's not quite there. Uh, perhaps they feel better and they don't feel they need their medicine anymore. People have more insight when they're in your office than when they're at home. And this is a deciding factor whether or not they're going to take their medicine. If they feel good, they may not. And this is going to be a big issue, and it is a big issue. Consistent medication treatment is the key to preventing relapse. I'm going to show you a way of looking at this that's maybe a little different. Before I proceed, how many here were at my effect size talk? Okay, so there's going to be some repetition here. Bear with me. If we take someone with schizophrenia and give them an antipsychotic over a two-year period, their risk of relapse is not zero. Unfortunately, it's not. It's going to be about 25%. However, we can say that based on available evidence, if they don't take any antipsychotic medication, the risk of relapse in a two-year period is 75%. Again, not 100%, it's 75%, but that's pretty close. It's pretty bad. Big difference, 75% versus 25%. And we would say the risk of relapse is three times as high when not taking medicine. It doesn't really address the question that we all have. What would be the number needed to treat to avoid a relapse event if we decide to give a medicine or not? How many patients do we need to treat with an antipsychotic rather than not in order to avoid one relapse event in two years? Well, we have the numbers necessary to make that calculation, 75% versus 25%. What is 75 minus 25, Christoph? 50. And how many times does that go into the number 100? Mm, twice. Right. So see, it's easy. Even Christoph can do it. So for and every, under stress. <laughs> for every two persons taking medication versus not, you avoid one relapse event over a two-year period. Now, isn't not that a huge effect size? That's amazing. I mean, you will not see that anywhere in medicine. So here we go. Uh, the other bit of urgency is that suicide attempts increase when therapy is interrupted. We take a look at this. This is another call to action for us. Antipsychotics currently are foundational for the treatment of our patients with schizophrenia, avoiding relapse and also making an impact on suicide. When treatments fail, 
we can think that maybe we made the wrong diagnosis and gave the wrong treatment, or maybe we gave the wrong dose of the right treatment, maybe we didn't wait long enough, maybe they have treatment resistance, but really, maybe they're not adherent or sufficiently adherent. Put that at the top of the list, because that is probably what is happening. Medication adherence is poor across most chronic medical conditions, including the psychiatric disorders and the disorders that you know we all have, like uh, hypertension. Raise your hand if you have hypertension. There should be more hands. I know my epidemiology. All right. So with hypertension, I have it, and I take antihypertensives, two of them, and I have a pill box. How many here have a pill box? Okay. And you know, there's a little compartment for each day of the week. Sometimes there's extra pills in my pill box. I don't know who put them in there. Obviously, I've forgotten to take them. And here I am, insightful, not wanting to have a heart attack, stroke, or die early. So I'm motivated to take my medicine, and yet it's hard for me, even though I'm cognitively intact, relatively so. And I have you know, routines and so on. What about our patients with schizophrenia? Cognitively not intact. Routines not established. Lifestyle quite chaotic. It's tough for them. We would estimate that a lot of our patients would be not adherent. In fact, research has been done demonstrating that 75% of patients with schizophrenia become not adherent within two years of hospital discharge, 50% within one year, and actually 25% after a couple weeks. So here it is. This is the data. 25% have become partially or not adherent within two weeks after discharge. That's a pretty sobering thought. After one year, it's 50%, and after two years, 75%. Unfortunately, we overestimate adherence because it's viewed as a failure, a failure on the part of our patient, failure on the part of us. And so we tend to overestimate the uh, degree of adherence that our patients actually have. And then we'll assume that not doing well means they're treatment resistant. And what happens then? We'll increase the dose of the medicines we give. We'll add more medicines. Before you know it, they're on three or four antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, antidepressants, none of which they take, and they're not getting any better. It's a no-win cycle. So we need to have some solutions. It's common, and so the first thing we need to do is admit to ourselves that some patients of ours are not going to be as adherent as we would like. How do we figure out risk factors for non-adherence? Well, I find it very um, useful to put it into four kinds of buckets. And these reasons for non-adherence are individual to the patient, and they may change over time as well. So in order to craft a treatment plan that addresses non-adherence, you have to actually identify the specific obstacles to adherence. So there's some patient-related issues, such as poor insight, negative attitudes about medicine, history of prior non-adherence, substance use, cognitive impairment. We need to identify those as, you know, some of them have solutions, some of them don't have any really great solutions. Treatment-related issues, though, we can do something about if we identify side effects that impact the degree of adherence, or perhaps lack of efficacy with our medicines. We don't adequately assess if our patients are getting better, I mean, we would say they're getting better the way we want them to get better, but they may not be getting better the way they want to get better. They may still have trouble sleeping, for example, and we didn't address that. They may be feeling anxious or, or depressed, actually, and we didn't address that either. 
Well, we were so focused on their hallucinations and delusions and degrees of hostility that we forgot about the other things. There may be some environment and relationship-related issues, such as lack of family or social support. If we don't enroll the family into the treatment plan, then it's going to be tough. So here's where NAMI uh, provides an invaluable service with psychoeducational programs in your communities where families can go and learn about the disease and be better equipped to deal with it. If it's a more community-related issue of shunning people with mental disorders, then community-related efforts need to be done to educate the public. There may be problems with the therapeutic alliance. If a patient perceives that you don't care, uh, that's going to impair, uh, impair adherence as well. Practical problems may be, I just can't get to the pharmacy. Well, that's a problem uh, that, that can be solved rather easily if you know about it. Societal-related issues, I uh, talked a bit about how the community may perceive mental disorders in general. The individual themselves may feel quite stigmatized, and they may be stigmatized by the illness itself or the side effects generated by the medication. So tardive dyskinesia, actually, is very stigmatizing. If you're walking with, uh, with uh, choreathetotic movements, pelvic thrusting, or sticking out your tongue, it, no one's going to want to sit next to you on the bus or talk to you and they'll think something's wrong with that person. They may be on drugs or something like that and uh, be told to leave wherever they are. So it's something we need to address. Some medication-related side effects and non-adherence issues that I'd like to point out is that what drives non-adherence is not really what you think. It's what the patient thinks. If they think that their side effect is terrible, they're not going to want to take their medicine. If they have a mild dry mouth that you say, hey, you know, what's the big deal? It's just mild dry mouth. I mean, suck it up or you know, have a candy or gum. But if they really are uncomfortable with it, it's important. If they say my teeth itch, now their teeth can't itch, but it is a perception that they have. Their reality becomes your reality, and we need to kind of work with that. Now, this varies from patient to patient, so people will interpret different somatic side effects differently, they'll react differently to whatever they experience, and that'll influence their adherence differently. So we need to ask specific questions about this. Now, most commonly associated with non-adherence are the usual suspects, weight gain, sedation, akathisia, sexual dysfunction, drug-induced Parkinsonism. Par cognitive problems is a sneaky cause of lack of adherence is that patients quite willing to take their medicine. Oh yeah, medicine's really helpful. Yeah, I take it. But they are not cognitively able to remember to take it consistently. Influencing our decisions is a whole different set of issues. Do I think this drug is safe? If it's not safe, I don't want to prescribe it. So a terrific example is olanzapine. We use olanzapine relatively freely, acutely, but we're kind of concerned about using it long-term. We're worried about the safety. Now, this becomes a conflict with our patients who may be feeling terrific on something that finally is working for them where all their drugs have not been successful. It happens with cozepine as well. And we're worried about long-term safety. Patient is only worried about you know, things that are bothering them. They don't care about their triglyceride level. You know, they don't feel that they have high triglycerides and it's bothering them, but it bothers us. So points of view are very important also when assessing side effects. So what's the next step? Well, if the 
person is not willing to take medicine, that's a different issue. That's like, I will not, forget it, not interested. Then we have to do something different. And Christoph will take us through motivational interviewing as a means of, of working with the patient in that regard. But most of the time, the patient is willing, at least in the office, and saying yes, but they just can't. They don't have the, the wherewithal to be successful. So pill boxes can be helpful, self-monitoring tools, reminders, routines. Long-acting injectables can also be very helpful. But I want you to think about something about LEIs. It's not just for people who have adherence problems. It's something that people may actually want to have. And if they don't know that it exists, they can't say, that sounds interesting, I want to try it. Now, this may sound strange or unusual, because we don't usually think about needles that way. But I'm thinking where I'm at. I take two antihypertensives. I take them every day, or I try to. If there was another way to take my medicine once a month, I'd want to hear about it. If it involves a needle, okay, I'll, I'll think about it, but you know, maybe that is not a bad way to do it, especially if it's convenient and I can do it myself, that would be great. If I can get it conveniently by a family member, that, that's okay too. So these are things that I would want to know about being a patient. And I think our patients with schizophrenia deserve the same degree of respect and they need to know what options are available for them. So not just for people who are not here, but you know, it's a choice. Well, effective communication strategies will be essential in convincing people to take medicines and to buy into the idea of their treatment. Do our preconceived notions influence what we offer? So we're going to use LAIs as an example there as well. How can we best engage Roger in participating in his treatment decision-making? Thanks, Les. So let's go through that. Well, what about the story of LAIs? They have been shown to be quite effective, didn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. For relapse prevention, prevention of hospitalization, treatment engagement, and even reduction of mortality in a paper that was voted one of the most 10 most important papers uh, last year by Heidi Taipale and uh, Yari Tihon, looking at this uh, Swedish national database showing that there's basically clearly less, uh, 20 to 30 percent less mortality with LAIs. But why are they not prescribed more? Well, because as Les already mentioned, many clinicians think, well, my patients are adherent because I'm such a good doctor. But they know, well, my colleagues' patients, of course, 75%, but that's a different cohort. Or they say, of course, I prescribe it, I would like to, I offer it, but all the patients say no. Well, is that so true? Well, I think research now shows more and more that clinicians are actually anticipating what patients might think. And in this uh, Norwegian study, you can see that doctors and nurses overestimated vastly the arguments that patients might have against LAI use. They assumed that patients would not want to take an LAI because of stigma, feeling controlled, not being able to decide yourself when you can take the medication, less self-dependence, being embarrassed, or even pain. Everywhere, the patients, even orally treated patients, are far below what doctors think and nurses think, and those that actually know what they're talking about that get the LAI have an even lesser problem with all of these things. 
The only two items where actually nurses and doctors underestimated the concerns of patients was the inconvenience of having to stay three hours after the injection with uh, olanzapine. Did that surprise you less? Well, I can't help myself. What happens when you assume? <laughs> you all know the answer to that one. <laughs> well, so I think a lot of it is projection, going back to Freud here now, um, that we don't want patients to suffer something that we wouldn't want to take ourselves. We think it's invasive. We think there is pain. Actually, we did a meta-analysis that people with schizophrenia have lower pain perception than the general population. And they might actually have much more pain by having the side effect of the illness that is not as well treated. So although doctors think patients refuse, when actually patients were asked, were you offered the medication? 80% said, well, LAI, what? Never been offered. And in another study, three quarters of the psychiatrists believed they actually informed people about that option, but only a third of the patients could actually confirm that. So we know that those patients who've at least tried it have a much better estimation of this potential treatment. That has been shown to overall improve outcomes. But how do you then get a person to change their mind and behavior? Les, what's the best way of doing that? Rule. <laughs> rule. But you don't rule in a paternalistic way. You try to establish rules with them. And basically, this is just a formalized way of what you do when you want to convince your spouse to go to a certain place for vacation, and she doesn't want to go or he doesn't want to go. Yeah, I mean, the carbon footprint, I understand, and you don't like to be so long on the, on the, the airplane, but wouldn't it be cool to see these animals that we've never seen before? Oh, the smells and the other food. So you're trying to link goals that you know your spouse has or what about your kids that don't want to study and just hang out and play video games? Well, wouldn't you want to have some money like daddy does? And where do you want to go with your life? That doesn't always work so well. But it's, again, trying to understand what makes people tick. So for that, you need to actually ask and understand these people. So basically, you have to resist making too many suggestions and understand. Ask understand what the person wants. And maybe for them it's not important to not hear voices anymore because they are somewhat companions, but they want to be able to stay in the basement of their parents. Or they want to be able to at least have some money to smoke cigarettes. So you then say, last time you didn't take the medication or you forgot about it, you actually had to be in the hospital again and your parents said, one more time and we throw you out because they were threatened with a knife again. And so you have to listen, obviously, and empower the patient. If you do this, and other patients have done that too, and we can have you talk to a peer, then you will actually get to where you want to be. And empowering patients with schizophrenia is important because they feel so disempowered, correct? They've always been told what to do, uh, what time they need to wake up, go to sleep, eat, medication time. We've all, you know, any of us who've worked in an inpatient setting remember medication time. It's very disempowered. Yes, and they've also learned I can't reach my goals. Not as much as my peers. I have this illness and people retract. So trying to give them some power again, and not only the power of refusing treatment, but doing something with the treatment is important. So there are basic principles to motivational interviewing. You have to actually accept the autonomy, but please of the patient and not of the illness. There are people who say, oh, let the person learn 
the illness. They have to run up against the wall and have a couple of relapses. I, I, I leave the autonomy to them. But it's the illness speaking when the patient says, I don't want to take any medication. So we need to empower patients to make the right choices. We need to collaborate, and that often means not only collaborating with the patient, but also the caregiver and the system, and then also see what their strengths are. So strength-based treatment is important. Absolutely. So what's the process? You have to connect and listen actively, as I already said. Elicit the values, the fears, the qualities, and skills. So you need to engage. Try to be as non-judgmental as possible, but firm. You are the expert in terms of the data, and you've seen many patients that are similar. They are experts by experience, but some of this experience might be erroneous. So if a patient stops a medication or forgets, what's their immediate effect? I actually feel better. I have less side effects. Oh, well, let me try another day. Damn it, still no relapse. The doctor was sick, not me, so I don't need the medication. So trying, when you give an LAI, you actually can map the good outcome to medication taking. But with oral treatment, patients learn the wrong reasoning about what's going on. So challenging that and also maybe having another peer that has been through that process help you is important. And you need to look at stages of change. Now, this is very complex, but uh, and we won't go through all of these here. You can read that up. But basically, you have to know where the patient is to target your intervention. Same when you want to convince your child or other people in your um, social network to do certain things. Are they in the pre-awareness? They don't even know what's good for them. Then so you need to do a lot of psychoeducation. Are they considering it? But, well, more no than yes. You have to, again, give them different options and sketch out what different options could lead to. You have to prepare them, look at the emotional ambivalence and maybe also some cognitive disconnect and work with that. And don't expect this to happen in the first session. It takes time, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, the first thing is patients don't know what they don't know, much in the same way that many of you had no idea those charts you saw at the beginning would be so complex and full of information about mechanisms that we had no idea were being studied. And now we know. So now we know what we don't know. And that's important to then work with that and basically reduce the white parts of the map. But one very important aspect is action. So my two last options for getting somebody, for example, to make a choice of an LAI is, well, if you were my son or daughter, this is what I would actually prescribe for you because I really believe it, and you have to believe it. And if that doesn't work because they say, but I'm not your son or daughter, which is true, um, then I say, okay, just try it once. I will not, I will get off your back, just try it once because you have a fear of something that you don't know, and we have a relationship. Why would I recommend something that is not good for you? Because we know people who have tried something are much more in favor of it than if they haven't. But then don't stop there because we have ambivalences and having maintenance for relapse prevention is important. So we have to keep engaged in that dialogue. So communication matters and you want to bring out the positives, don't you? This is from a study where there was a linguistic processing of audio taped um, conversations of doctors who knew they were be being taped and they were trying to actually get the patient to make a choice from an oral to an LAI antipsychotic. And guess what? Trying to convince someone, fair would be maybe 
what was what would be fair to say good things versus maybe not so good things? I, I would say everything. You know, you, you can't hide things. And if someone figures out that you didn't tell them something and you should have, well, then the trust is lost. Right, but it would be maybe 50-50. But if you want to sell something because you you think it's good, you might want to spend a little bit more time on the positives without hiding the negatives. So maybe two-thirds, one-third. But in this study, 9% of the speech time was spent on positive aspects. That tells you the bias that the clinicians 91% have. spent on the negative aspects. Exactly, or neutral, but not basically promoting what you think is important. But when then someone else, and only a third of the patients said, maybe I'll do it, but then when somebody came in that actually did motivational interviewing and was more convinced, it went to at least the verbal choice to 96%. But let's now go to evidence-based practice. What does this all mean? How do we put this together less? And Roger seems to be essential for the process, correct? Absolutely. You know, we talked a lot about LAIs. Not everything comes in an LAI. And frankly, maybe someone is not going to be adequately treated with a product that is available as an LAI. So we need to know about all our options, try to figure out how to offer it to Roger, you know, for, for Roger, I, you know, you don't want a shot, do you? It's not going to work, obviously. How would you like to get your medicine once a month every two months? Hey, that sounds a lot more interesting. Uh, but what if Roger actually doesn't uh, respond to uh, risperidone or paliperidone or apiprazole? Uh, and, you know, uh, alanspine pamoid, there's no replacement for it yet, but there may be in the future. And alanspine pamoid is difficult to use, et cetera, so it's not really an option. What do we do? We don't want to give a first-generation LAI, so we're kind of in a situation where we need to give an oral medicine. We need to match the right medicine to Roger so that it all makes sense. Now, this is uh, a repetition of some of the things I presented in the effect size EBM lecture I gave a couple of days ago, but it's worth repeating. Evidence-based medicine is not cookbook medicine. It's not just following a plan, a guideline. It is using the relative and uh, relevant scientific evidence, but within the context of your clinical judgment that you've accumulated over the years, as well as the patient's values and preferences. So you and clinical judgment, Roger and his values and preferences, and the scientific evidence will help support the decision-making. Now, the evidence, not the eminence. So this is particularly an issue with residents and training. They'll do whatever the attending does, and then they go on and practice exactly what they learned in residency without making any changes, and that is eminence-based medicine, not evidence-based medicine. So we do need to keep up to date. Your presence here indicates your desire to get new information to figure out what's new, what's different, and what could be useful. If we don't do this and we get out of date, we won't use effective interventions. We'll use things that may not work, and are unproven. We'll have variations in practice. We see this in tonsillectomy rates from community to community, and uh, as well as C-section rates from community to community and practice to practice, unnecessary variations. And, you know, this dependence on eminence-based versus evidence-based can be quite problematic. And then lastly, we're creatures of habit, so we may be doing LPIT medicine. Last patient I treated. Hey, that worked. I'll try it for the next one, without individualizing the decision. Evidence-based medicine is the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of the current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. 
Now, this is where clinical trials actually fail us because they compare results based on groups of patients. But they do provide some evidence that we may be able to consider when making individual decisions, and that means using the lens of your clinical judgment and your patient's values and preferences. So we need to integrate evidence into our practice, but we need to use our brains. Effect sizes are really important. Now, when Christoph talked about the meta-analyses and talked about standard, standardized mean difference in effect size, he essentially was talking about standard deviation differences. And a difference of one standard deviation is very large, one and a half is, is huge, but most of our treatments have standard deviation effect sizes measured like hey, 0 0.4, 0 0.5, when we're lucky. I don't know about you, but I have trouble thinking about it in this way. Oh yeah, standard deviation different. Okay, so I'll no. It's easier to use an effect size that is clinically more intuitive. Number needed to treat is one of those. How many here have heard of number needed to treat? Excellent. Who can calculate it? Okay, a couple of people. Can you kindly step up here? No. <laughs> so it's a measure of effect size that everyone in this room can actually calculate without too much trouble. It's not the same as a p-value. P-value only tells us if we're dealing with the truth, we think, or not. If something has a low p-value, okay, it's probably right, but it doesn't mean it's important necessarily. And uh, you can have a very low p-value for something that is clinically irrelevant. So we need effect size to judge the clinical significance of something that is statistically significant. How many patients would you need to treat with drug A instead of drug B before expecting to encounter one additional outcome you would like, like a response? You can also calculate number needed to harm. How many patients do you need to treat with one intervention versus the other before expecting to encounter one additional patient with akathisia, with sedation, with waking of at least 7% from baseline? Small NNT numbers, bigger differences between the two choices you're thinking. Now, in terms of where NNTs are generally calculated, they're from randomized controlled trials, and they generally compare drug versus placebo. We don't give placebo, so what do we make of that? Well, we have rules of thumb here for NNT values that we calculate for drug versus placebo. And we're going to first calculate NNT, and then I'm going to give you the rules of thumb, and then it'll allow us to make indirect comparisons of our choices. Because if something has a lower NNT versus placebo than the other option that has a NNT versus placebo, we're going to take the one with the lower one. Because we're going to get success more often, we think. What about number needed to harm? We'll take the one with the higher NNH. Because we don't want to deal with that adverse event. And the higher the number, the less often we'll see the, the harm. So low numbers, we see it more often. High numbers, we see it less often. So for efficacy, we want low numbers low NNTs, because we'll see efficacy more often. With adverse events, we want high numbers because we don't want to see that adverse event. So how do we calculate all this? It's really easy. All you need to know is the percentages or frequency of the outcome that you're interested in for each drug or for placebo. You're going to subtract these two percentages, and you're going to see how many times it goes into the number 100. I see here 1 over AR. So AR is uh, our secret code attributable risk. That's the term to mean, okay, you're taking the difference between the two percentages. I talk percentages because when we deal with decimal points, it, it screws people up. So I, I like to just talk about whole numbers, percentages, so we have two percentages and then we'll make our calculations. We're going to round up 
and I'm going to get, show you why we round up in just a minute. So here is a, a calculation that you can all make. Drug A results in remission 50% of the time. Drug B results in remission 20% of the time. Okay, so A is two and a half times better than B. Hey, isn't it? 50 divided by 20 is two and a half. Two and a half times better. I'm going to have two and a half times more success. No, can't really say it that way. You have to look at the absolute difference and calculate the N and T. So what is 50 minus 20? 30, all right. 30 goes into 100 how many times? Four. 3.33. Uh, but 3.33 is would be our calculated NNT, but it would mean we'd have to treat three and a third patients with option A versus option B before encountering one additional remitted patient. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't treat thirds of patients. Uh, they don't come to my office. They come whole. So we'll round up to the next whole number, to four. So you're right, it is four, that's how we do it, and it's, it's, it's right up here on the slide too. So for every four patients that you give drug A to instead of drug B, you'll expect to encounter one additional remitted patient. Now why didn't I round it down to three? Because then I could be making a mistake. I could be exaggerating the difference, because three is a stronger number needed to treat value than four. Now I don't want to make mistakes like that when calculating these things. So I'll round it up and you know, be conservative about it, and four. Four is a nice number needed to treat value, and it will probably dictate our decision-making. We'll give A instead of B most of the time, unless, of course, there's a side effect that's a problem with A for that particular patient, or perhaps it's not on the formulary and we can't give it. So a clinically important NNT or NNH, I want to give you some rules of thumb. Versus placebo, or no treatment, an NNT of two would be hugely important. And we saw that with the continuation of medication treatment over a two-year period in order to avoid a relapse of schizophrenia. NNT values in general less than 10 denote a potentially useful intervention. NNT values that are greater than 10 generally mean that, I don't know, this is going to be unusual that this will actually work in my clinical practice. NNH values greater than 10, on the other hand, are desirable because you don't want to have to encounter that adverse event. You want to avoid it as much as you can. Now, some NNTs may be clinically important, even if they are relatively large when the outcome is death, for example. And we uh, sometimes some of us take statins. Well, the number needed to treat to avoid a, a cardiovascular adverse outcome can be measured in the hundreds for that one. But who wants a heart attack or a stroke? No one. So you're going to take something prophylactically when that outcome is so, so uh, problematic, to say the least. The efficacy of antipsychotics can be assessed using number needed to treat. Clinical trials compare generally against placebo. And what we do is indirectly compare one drug with another based on the fact that they were compared against placebo. And if one drug works better against placebo than the other one, well, then we would say, well, there's may be an advantage of that agent. Problem is, we don't have a good definition of response in schizophrenia. We do in depression and mania, where it's a 50% reduction on the rating scale from baseline. With schizophrenia, we don't have such a agreed upon standard. Sometimes we report a 20% improvement from baseline, which is barely perceptible, or a 30% improvement, which is a little better. 
But in general, the NNTs on that outcome are less than 10 for acute studies of antipsychotics versus placebo. For maintenance studies, it's also less than 10 in preventing relapse compared to placebo. Your individual mileage will vary, though. I say this because we all know some of our patients do better on one agent versus another, and the next guy, it's the opposite. What about tolerability? It's all over the map, and it depends on the patient. So we learned at the very beginning that efficacy is pretty much similar across the antipsychotics, with some exceptions like uh, clozapine, but tolerability is a different story. But it gets more complicated than that, because although tolerability outcomes are all over the map depending on the antipsychotic, they're also all over the map for the individual patient. We all have experiences that some patients are more sensitive to akathisia or sedation than others. And in that instant, uh, uh, for that particular situation, that's going to dictate your choices of, of medicines that you're going to provide. So I have patients on olanzapine who don't gain weight, and they stay on olanzapine. They never gained weight on anything, and it was fine. And then I have other patients who gain weight on just looking at them. Uh, um, nothing. They, they gain weight. I don't know how this happens. And then I'm going to be very concerned about drugs that can be associated with increased appetite. So it depends on the individual person. So the patient's values and preferences, like Roger's, is going to be key in selecting the right medicine. Perfection is not possible, generally. Efficacy has to be good enough, tolerability good enough, adherence good enough, and then you have a successful choice. There is sufficient heterogeneity among antipsychotics to make this feasible under most conditions. And what we need to consider is the heterogeneity amongst our patients in order to make that right decision. A little bit about side effects again. The side effect appears, subjective distress, adherence is impacted. Subjective distress is something that we need to ask about when patients ask, uh, report a side effect. On the other hand, we have some uh, decision-making to do when we have objective uh, evidence of severity of an adverse event, such as elevations in glucose or lipids. We have to have a discussion with the patient regarding the safety of the drug, and sometimes we'll decide to continue the medicine, but we have to do something different. Uh, we may have to uh, add another medicine, metformin, for example. Not unusual, right? Add it to clozapine or lansapine when we have to. Some advocate doing it right away. In terms of the initial decision on what to do, we can look at product labels and look at them a little differently. Look at those percentages of, of rates of weight gain of at least 7%, rates of somnolence adverse events, rates of akathisia adverse events. We can look at those percentages and do something with them. We can subtract them. Drug minus placebo, how many times it goes into the number 100, and we'll have our number needed to harm right out of the label. And we can figure out for something new that's presented to us for our consideration, what is the number needed to harm for weight gain, for someone's for akathisia. And we can see which ones have high numbers, which means we're less likely to encounter that adverse event in general. Some of them have really low numbers, which means that pretty much routinely you're going to encounter this when using this drug in your clinical practice. Just for fun, we're going to look at the ones that are less than 10. No surprises here. When we use olanzapine, we're going to expect weight gain of at least 7% in patients that we routinely treat. 
we're also going to expect somnolence. Similarly, with uh, quetiapine, we're going to expect some degree of somnolence or sedation. Now, if you have a number needed harm of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, that may be a problem for some patients who are very sensitive to that adverse event. And so we're going to look for NNH values that are like 50, 60, 70. And we'll do our best to match up the right drug with the right patient. So treatment's a dynamic process. Opportunity and risk present itself. We don't look for perfection. We look for something that will work well enough, tolerated well enough, but the patient has to be willing to take it. Long-acting injectables offer an option, but not all drugs are available in LAIs, and we need to keep our, uh, uh, our options open. Getting the patient to buy in is key here, so motivational interviewing, as we discussed, is going to be an important uh, tool in our toolbox there. Don't forget about the whole team. Uh, we need to address substance use, intensive case management, and assertive community treatment are very helpful in, in my community, and I'm sure in yours as well. Vocational rehabilitation, cognitive remediation are other services that uh, some communities can provide, others can't, but they also offer an opportunity to uh, increase the functionality of our patients with schizophrenia. Switch or stay decisions will be based on your clinical experience, the relevant scientific evidence, and the patient's values and preferences. So that means getting all that information that we have talked about uh, today and if we need to do something extra, we need to be open-minded about that too. Diet, exercise, additional medicines, uh, metformin, beta blockers, uh, anticholinergic medications I'm not a fan of, but we have to do it for acute dystonic reactions. But I prefer amantadine actually for longer-term use if I have to deal with drug-induced Parkinsonism that I cannot avoid by switching because I can't switch. Otherwise, I would like to switch. So let's conclude. Antipsychotics vary more regarding side effects than for efficacy. On the horizon are multiple antipsychotics. I don't know what we'll call them. Maybe we won't call them antipsychotics, but refer to them by their mechanism of action that may be better tolerated, as well as medications that may be more helpful for negative symptoms and cognitive impairment. Adherence remains a challenge for many of our patients. Engaging patients in their treatment requires care in how we communicate. We spent a great deal of time doing that. And assessing new medications requires some basic skills. And evidence-based medicine tools such as number needed to treat, number needed to harm are very handy. And everyone in this room can calculate these numbers, and I urge you to give it some further thought. Let's uh, open it up for Q&A. The microphones are there on the floor. Feel free. I'm an advocate for my patient, um, but I can get Risperidone for 10 bucks without insurance as a PO. It's going to cost me 200 times more. I'm wondering, you know, what is the responsibility that I have to the expenditure of medical resources? So it depends where you are. I can talk about the American experience. Christoph can talk about what's happening in Germany right now. In, in terms of what I make available to patients is I make active use of patient assistance programs for products that are more costly. And I'm able to get it. it, it I have to jump through some hoops, and there are some requirements in terms of income and so on of the recipient, but it is possible. And I do want to offer the options that are state-of-the-art to my patients, so it does, but it does require a bit of extra effort. 
But you're right in that it, if I don't do that, then some options are completely inaccessible. So I, I so appreciate I, that. I mean, the data suggests clearly, whether you look at Katie or other studies, that the cost for medication is dwarfed by the cost that we and the system pay for patients not doing well and being back in the hospital. So I think you would be doing the right thing by spending more on something that has better outcomes. Otherwise, you're penny-wise, pound-foolish. Some, some areas of the world are more enlightened about this. So I would say European countries in general have better resources made available to patients regarding this than here. Hi. Aside from the Lancet article, which I thought was amazing because of the charts, do you have a good um, reference article that you would suggest for helping us determine, you know, understanding the subtle nuances in variation between the different new antipsychotics and when to apply one or the other. Is there any kind of really good suggestive article? There have been many attempts to write books, textbooks, about selecting antipsychotics. Right from the very beginning of the antipsychotic era, uh, they involve principally eminence-based judgments on what's best, what's useful, what's not. But the later books that have been emerging are more evidence-based. And I don't want to endorse one in one in particular, but the more recent the publication, the more helpful it will generally be about the newer agents. In terms of understanding the pharmacodynamics of a particular drug and how it may be better suited for one instance or another. Uh, Stephen Stahl has an excellent textbook. It, it's, it's pretty big, though. It requires a commitment to reading and rereading and then listening also to lectures whenever you can to fully understand it. But at least it gives you a framework with, uh, so you're not like randomly selecting them. Okay, we got another question. Please make recommendations for when maximum recommended dose do not control symptoms fully. So I think you have three options. Uh, one is to say, um, does the patient have side effects that are rate limiting and they're not really helped enough? Then you most likely would either switch off or lower the dose and augment. And we'll talk about what augmentation in a minute. Um, if patients have no efficacy but also no rate-limiting side effects or limited efficacy but no rate-limiting side effects, I think you should go up. I stop dosing only at two points, wow or ow, and it has nothing to do with the recommended dosing because your patient might actually have a very different absorption, may, might have different blood-brain barrier, might be an ultra-rapid metabolizer. But first of all, you have to check if somebody doesn't have side effects and efficacy. Well, are they actually taking the medication? Because the biggest reason is most likely pseudo-resistance. But I would go up on the same medication if I can with a dose, if there's tolerability. Others then add another antipsychotic, in, in effect doubling or increasing doping blockade, but being a little bit really off uh, the chart. But what about other combination treatments? We did an umbrella review of 42 different combination strategies from 29 meta-analyses. There are some treatments. You can read it in JAMA Psychiatry last year. Um, but the, the evidence is weak. So the best would be clozapine, in our opinion. Yeah, if you're unsure if someone is, is actually 
you know, why they're not doing well, the first thing to ask is, are they adherent? And they may be adherent in their own mind that they're adherent enough, and they may be not able to uh, accurately articulate their degree of adherence. So a trial of an LAI would be highly recommended under those circumstances to make sure that you, they did get a good, decent trial of an adequate dose for an adequate period of time. Barring that, clozapine would be the best option, even though it comes with a lot of... Maybe problems. the last question? Uh, Two-parter. Okay. In, in the case of adolescents or young adults who are still at home or the parents still involved, how do you involve the parent or the caregiver in that discussion to move to an LAI? Do you and how do you do that? And part two is, and I think it might be a version of this gentleman's question, is there any comparative or head-to-head -head data on the LAIs to help choose which one? Well, on the adolescent part, um, I think that an adolescent brain with psychosis is very similar to an adult brain, and I would use similar treatment options and also choices. Um, engaging parents might be actually easier when you have an adolescent because they are so worried about their kids, and also they have more of an in on them and have more power in a way. Um, so I, I would try to engage them, show them the data, although they don't involve adolescents, but for me, there's really the, the diagnosis is the same. The FDA has changed now. They are, they are not requiring separate studies anymore. They allow the most recent LAI trials and other trials to involve some adolescents, not a separate study, and then extrapolate if the signal is somewhat similar. And then when do you involve the parent in that conversation? Early. I mean, I would actually, if, if you believe that LAIs are most likely the best option, I would, when you start, the oral would say, let's see first whether that can work. And um, after that, we'll talk about something that's not 365 days a year where you have to hover over your child or adolescent in order to make this happen. And then the head-to-head -head studies are very few and far between of LAIs. And uh, basically, it's the same as the oral treatment. It's just in a different bottle. So whatever you think and have experienced for each patient or different patients to be better, you would then potentially choose that LAI first. Yeah, I would make the assumption that they will be relatively equal in efficacy, but different in side effects. Some side effects, some patients would be more worried about than others, and some patients may be more sensitive to some side effects than others. Right now, we basically only have two kinds of, you know, first-line LAIs in the second-generation class, the risperidone and paliperidone family of, of options, and then the aripiprazole family of options. And basically, you look at the basic molecule and see uh, if that tolerability profile will match the desires of the patient. In terms of which LAI to use amongst the individual families, it's all a matter of the amenities of care, as I like to call it. Uh, so what's the size of the needle? What's the injection volume? What's the storage requirement? What's the oral supplementation requirement when you start it? What's the interval of time between injections? So these are the things other than the actual molecule that uh, talk about the convenience and ease of use of a product. Great. Thank you all very much for having been here. We hope that this was helpful and have a good rest of your meeting. Thank you. Thank you.